0: As speech pathologists, we we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe.
1: If we've got assessment
2: findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions
3: And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make.
4: Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say.
5: Hi, it's Annika, and thank you so much for tuning into the final episode of Speak Up for 2021 and Season 3. Well, what a year we have had. It started with so much optimism after the year that was 2020. But for many of us, this quickly changed to being rough, difficult, exhausting, strange, demanding, frustrating. I could go on. I hope you've reached the end in one piece. And despite the challenges, were still able to find some joy and happiness in the year. I started working on the podcast in March and have enjoyed every minute of bringing you a hopefully interesting conversation each week. We truly have some inspirational people in the speech pathology world who are beyond generous in sharing their knowledge with us all. Rather than bring you a new conversation for our final episode of 2021, I thought it would be a great opportunity to look back at some of the wonderful conversations we have featured this year. Hope you enjoy. The most listened to conversation of the year was with the impressive Dr. Elizabeth Woodcock. Elizabeth taught us all a thing or two about selective mutism. I do wonder if the stresses of the past two years on our little ones may result in paediatric speeches seeing more and more kids presenting with selective mutism. Only time will tell.
6: Yeah, so it's a disorder that's a lot more common the younger the child is. So it tends to present in preschool. And uh, there's not a lot of research of the prevalence, but uh, the studies are suggesting about one in 140 children in the first three years of school. That's from the first year of school, not preschool. So I'd say it's even more common in preschoolers than that. And then when you look at the older age group, so for example, seven to 15 years, one in 555 children. So you can see how it becomes a lot rarer as time goes on. And I think that's because kids end up finding treatment and um, it, it ends up resolving. And once resolved, unlike a lot of other anxiety disorders, it doesn't tend to relapse. Um, and in terms of your other question of uh, common traits, uh they, these kids tend to have a very strong genetic history, so you see of anxiety, so you see okay. more anxiety in uh, their family members or extended family members, not just selective mutism, but it could be social anxiety or other mm-hmm. anxiety disorders. Then they're born with an anxious temperament. And then there's a number of things the research shows, like uh, they tend to have been socialised less as they're growing up, and there's more changes of house and school, so it's almost like a bit of a setback, so they kind of might make a little bit of progress with socialising at preschool or school, and then they have a change, which then just sets them back and makes it harder.
5: It was a big year for speeches working in the aged care sector, following the tabling of the final report from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety in March. We were lucky enough to have some influential people in this space chat to us, including Craig Gear from the Older Persons Advocacy Network and Dr Melanie Roth from the Australian Government's Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission.
7: It's been really interesting that I've seen What I see is around the Charter of Aged Care Rights and the really the importance of that charter um, and the importance of us understanding that older people, you do not check your rights at the door when you go into aged care. Every older person has rights. But particularly for me is right number seven, which says I have control over and make choices about my care, personal and social life, including where those choices involve personal risk and also there's rights that talk around the right to uh, have information in a way that I can understand. And I think that's particularly where speeches come in and are Mm. absolutely vital in the system.
8: Um, Other clinical priorities at the moment for me personally um, and for the Commission generally are restrictive practices in aged care, which has been highlighted as as a major issue of concern among many others so the the recommendations of the Royal Commission are are, are guiding a lot of my work Um, but another key priority area is food dining and nutrition reason being it was highlighted as as being in a in a pretty parlous state and also if you speak to residents um, Food is such an important part of their day. Sometimes it's the greatest pleasure they get in a day as their ability to participate in other, other um, activities and meaningful things um, it becomes more limited. So given that um, and the number of complaints the Commission receives about food um, and the, the clear... Um, role you know the the, the clear scope for improvement that's definitely a focus of the Commission at the moment as you would know Kim um, being a member of of the Commission's expert advisory group in in food and nutrition at the moment. And uh, we very much appreciate speech pathology input into that. Obviously, it's it's a crucial component, both clinically and uh, for, for quality of life.
5: Loved the birds in the background of that episode. It was so great to have some very impressive clinicians from other professions feature across the year. I especially love chatting to Charlinda Parsons, a paediatric occupational therapist, who was as practical as you can
9: get. If if they're under grade four, pencil all the way because that's what they're using in um in the classroom and 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 I tend to actually not even like them using textures and that's probably just a personal preference on my part. Um, I feel like pencils so textures don't give very good feedback to their what their hands are doing, so they're not having to. Um, it just makes it. It harder in terms of their learning of what of motor memory because the pen the pen the text is just slide sorry but I'm going on a tangent there um over over grade four sometimes it depends on the child sometimes I might give them a choice um but it also depends on what I'm doing with them so if it's a written task and I'm going to be correcting. I'm working on, on handwriting and correcting letter formation. And I guess from a speechy perspective, if you're looking at correcting spelling as you go, then I would I would probably just say, in speech, we're going to use pencils um, because you can rub it out to, to fix it. Um, and for those kids who have messy handwriting or um, are just struggling with that kind of um, controlling of the pencil, my preference would be a pencil rather than a pen because pens don't forgive um, at all. And look, there are some kids where, for uh, f- from an OT perspective, where the pen licence is, it's the thing to work towards and that is their goal, is I want my pen licence like everybody else. And these kids are often very aware that their handwriting is messy and that it's almost like a, I might not get my pen licence. With those kids, I will often try and negotiate with school um, because in my mind, I feel like these kids are working towards good handwriting. But why are we punishing them and making them stand out even more because they don't have the 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 neatest of handwriting like the other kids in the classroom? Um, so I would look at the erasable pens. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> they're great. Oh, I love them. I love using them. Um, and for some of those kids, that then enables them to use a um, get a pen license. But also the erasable part means that they're not necessarily going to have, they can fix up the the errors that they make.
5: There are no longer pens offered to my primary school age kids in my clinic room. Some of my favourite episodes this year were episodes showcasing clinicians talking about their speech pathology journey. One of these episodes featured four recent new graduates who spoke with so much insight and wisdom beyond their years
0: gosh, it's crazy to think there's a new group of new grads. I still feel like a brand new new grad. Um, I would make sure you go for the job you really want. We've talked on all the how many jobs there are for people out there. Make sure you go for the job you really want and one that you will enjoy. I know we've talked about also red flags and the risk of burnout but I really love my job and I think that makes it so much easier to get up and go to work, um, especially with all the learning that we do too. I would also say if you are looking for an exciting change or want to step into a different environment, I highly recommend looking for a job in a regional or rural area. It's an experience like no other. And I find it's really rewarding too. You get the opportunity to build strong relationships with clients and their families who really value your work. And they are just so grateful for everything you do. It's really special.
5: Good luck to all the 2021 graduates listening. Well done on completing your training over two of the most challenging years in recent history and all the very best as you embark on your speech pathology journey. I experienced a few pinch me moments this year. One of my biggest was during speech pathology week when I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Professor Sharon McLeod, who is not only an Australian speech pathology guru, but also one of the most joyful humans you could ever meet.
10: It's so important as speech pathologists, we are great talkers. We so have so much skill at communicating that we often forget how difficult it is for the people around us that we work with each day to communicate and also for the people who never get to um, access our services who have difficulty communicating even to be able to access services to support their communication. As speech pathologists, we often think about the person in front of us and really support that person. But sometimes we forget about the advocacy that needs to happen across the whole of society to encourage people to speak up for communication rights. And so I think that's what we're talking about today, because communication is everyone's right, is Speech Pathology Australia's um, theme for our special week.
5: We all know that technology is changing at an incredibly rapid rate. It is sometimes hard to keep on top of new technology that can have life-changing impacts on the lives of the people we work with. It was great to have Rob Wong join us from Control Bionics to update us on voice banking.
7: Yeah, well, most clients um, really what they need to do is they need to register depending on what they want to do with a, a voice banking service, and it might be um, a cappella or it might be Nuance um, or it might be Model Talker. Um, in terms of the US, Um, and essentially you you start an account, um, you'll be given a a process to go through in terms of speaking um, a range of different sentences, and there's a whole range of different services in terms of small sentence um, sets to very large sentence sets to establish the um, necessary information to be able to get a good voice facsimile. Um, So essentially what happens is you'll register an account you will um, go through a process of either um, answering questions around a standard set of um, phrases, um, and you'll, you'll be recording those. And in some instances, you'll be recording specific phrases that are familiar to you. So you know, if you really say, like to say g'day, um, those are phrases which may be something that you would include in the not a part of the standard set and you go through a process of, um, of recording those, those outputs. So you would basically have a headset on, uh, be talking into your computer online um, for a range of different uh, periods from, from 10 minutes through to you know, a very extended period of time if you're doing lots and lots of phrases. Uh, and once that, um, that process is, uh, is, is done, um, you will get a, uh, a file back from the particular vendor Um, and it will have a version of your your software. And you can either approve or disapprove that and see if you can improve it. Um, And then finally, when you're happy, that process, um, there'll be potentially a subscription or a price paid for those services. And then that uh, voice um, zip will be emailed to your account, and then you can download that onto your computer. And then once it's downloaded onto your computer, you can bring it up through your speech generating device to be your preferred voice.
5: We were so lucky to have a number of internationally renowned guests join us this year. Dr. Carol Westby speaking about personal narratives was a real highlight.
11: I've been around for quite some time, and so I've watched the field change. In the early 1970s, when I began my clinical work, the focus in speech and language pathology was initially on syntactic structures. Then we moved into semantic functions. By the end of the 70s, we were beginning to talk about pragmatics and Two extremely important publications came out with respect to narrative. The first one in 1978 was Arthur Appleby's dissertation, A Child's Sense of Story. And he looked at how young children told fictional stories with the idea of what were the cognitive kinds of skills they needed to be able to do this. The next year, in 1979, Stein and Glenn's article came out on a story grammar structure for fictional narratives. Well, I found those so fascinating uh, and to understand children's stories. I took a children's literature class, and then with other faculty at the university, we began to look at how children who had reading problems told fictional stories, and quite a few people in the field of speech-language pathology began to do that in the the early 80s, and consistently the work was showing that children who had difficulty telling and comprehending coherent fictional stories by kindergarten had long-term academic difficulties all the way through middle school. And so from that, then, I continued to pursue the fictional narratives and how to help children develop the skill in comprehending and understanding fictional narratives. So that's how that all got started.
5: Professor Swathi Karan from Boston University joined us as a keynote speaker at the 2021 conference. We were so grateful she agreed to be part of the podcast to chat about her work in neurorehabilitation.
12: I think the most important takeaway message that I give That I want to give all clinicians working with brain injured adults um, is this, that the brain recovery plateau is a myth. There's neuroplasticity after a brain injury is a real thing. People can improve months and years after a stroke or a brain injury and there's tons and tons of research showing that this happens. It is so frustrating and disappointing to hear from patients and stroke survivors who say that their therapist or doctor told them that they should not receive any more therapy because they may not improve anymore. And there's just mounting evidence of which I'm a part of, but there's also across the world evidence showing that this is not true. The brain can recover after a stroke. And what we need to do is understand the different ingredients that make the brain plastic even after a stroke.
5: One episode that I continue to receive emails about was with the delightful Dr. Rebecca Waring. Rebecca got us all thinking about how executive function can impact speech sound disorder, something that was definitely new to my thinking.
4: And so when you think about the children's belonging to different subgroups, it lends itself to the question of why are they making the types of errors that they are? And so when we think about those kids who are making the atypical errors, something's gone wrong with the way they've come up with their rules. So I think of those children, you know, um, who have classically have uh, difficulty around clusters. And so where a child with a phonological delay might turn stop into SOP or into TOP, a child with a phonological disorder might say FOP instead of stop. And so this led us to the idea that what's going on with these children is that um, they're not working out the right rules. So it might be in the case of the example with FOP um, for stop, but the child's picked up on the idea that they need a fricative, but that's the only element that they've thought about. So they've gone, ah, I need a long sound. And so they've gone with their favorite long sound and put that f in there. So it no longer resembles the word. <clears throat> And so the work that we've done around those children and most of my work is around differentiating phonological delay and phonological disorder is we've gone in and we've looked at how these children are able to abstract rules with the question being, you know, is this a broad difficulty understanding and working out rules across all sorts of tasks or is it just specific to language? And what we've found for phonological disorder kids is that uh, they have this sort of generalised difficulty with rules and working out um, the patterns.
5: It wouldn't be 2021 without an episode about the impact of COVID-19 on our profession. Who better to chat about that than the amazing Dr. Lynn Williams, the 2021 president of ASHA.
13: So the, as I'd mentioned before, the pandemic is uh, an accelerator, um... For change, but it's also a magnifier of the things that needed to change. So we've learned that we can make changes faster than we thought was ever possible. Mm -hmm. We've also learned that change can be good. Um, it, It can be better, it can be more efficient, it can be more effective, like in terms of our service delivery models, in terms of our access to services in terms of our learning, both for our clients, patients, students, but also in university settings. Um, yeah, you know, I had to learn a totally different way of teaching in in our fall semester. And I won't go back, you know, the, that um, high flex method, I, I worked a whole lot harder than I've ever worked, but it was so exhilarating So it wasn't just exhausting, it was exhilarating. And the students got so much from it too. So I don't see us bouncing back to 2019, but bouncing forward to 2022.
5: Our wonderful SPA president, Tim Kittle, actually interviewed Lynn for that episode. He has an end-of-year message of his own for you all.
14: Hi, Annika. Thanks so much for the work that you've put into the podcast this year. And thanks also for giving me a moment to reflect on 2021. Um, While so much has happened over the course of the year and so much of that (laughs) in the virtual world, um, it was really nice actually to go back and remember that conversation that I had with Lynn Williams on the podcast. So many of the highlights of 2021 for me have been those moments where you connected with somebody who you hadn't actually seen for a really long time and you get that memory of just how easy it is to be in their company and for me catching up with lynn again was one of those moments over the year i'm really lucky to be in this position where i work clinically and i also get a chance to pop my head out of the clinic room and check in with the profession across australia and occasionally all over the world and sorry if you heard this before i could be a bit boring i i keep saying as a profession i think we're doing incredibly well despite the stress of all the uncertainty and with rules and restrictions changing all the time. And I think possibly that's because of our professional culture before the pandemic, we've always been looking out for each other. We're sort of rare in terms of the fact that as a profession, we don't really seem to need to compete with each other. Um, we ask each other questions, um, but we also provide each other with support and resources. So I think that's potentially what stood us in great stead over the period of disruption. And although it's not over, and I feel that whatever comes ahead, we've kind of got this. So, thanks to the podcast listeners. And on behalf of the board, I just want to re- wish a relaxing summer or maybe winter, uh, depending on where you are. Uh, slow down, loads and loads of celebration. And of course, a 2022 that's filled with lots of those real vital new moments of connection and reconnection. All the best.
5: We are so lucky to have someone of the caliber of Tim heading up our association. Tim, if you are listening, thank you for everything you do. It does not go unnoticed. All the way back in January, Professor Pam Snow and Associate Professor Tanya Seri introduced us to the Solar Lab.
2: We launched the Solar Lab earlier this year, back in May, um, really after quite some time of Tanya and I thinking and talking about how we can realise a long-term desire to bring the science of language and reading to the coalface more readily. Um, The coalface being classroom teachers and allied health professionals, such as speech language pathologists, educational and developmental psychologists. And also we know that there's a growing interest um, in this area amongst parents and, and parent advocacy groups. Um, it's very important to us as speech-language pathologists that um, this um, acronym SOLA has two really important terms in it, well, three really, um, science. So we want this to be an evidence-based initiative. Language, as speech-language pathologists and as um, people who um, study reading, Um, uh, we know that language and language skills are profoundly important in this space. Um, And of course, the reading um, component being the end point, because that's so important for all children's um, success.
5: I'm sure we will be hearing much more from the Solar Lab in the coming years, which is very exciting. Showcasing new innovation is something I'm always pleased to do. I really enjoyed hearing Jen Davis chat about the innovative first point of contact contact model she was part of at Logan Hospital.
15: This model was developed by Associate Professor Bernard Whitfield, uh, the Director of ENT here at Logan Hospital, Professor Liz Ward, Marnie Seabrook and Maria Schwartz back in 2013.
4: Uh I'd imagine it would take a team
3: like that to work together.
15: Because nothing like it Uh existed. So they um, Uh had to initially specify inclusion and exclusion criteria into the clinic, so which patients Uh were going to be seen by speech pathology in this first point of contact kind of model. And they identified Uh that it had to be adults, so patients over 18 years old, patients who had been triaged by ENT and categorized as a Category 2 or Category 3 patient. Uh, Uh They had to be non-smokers and they were patients who didn't have large thyroid nodules. So they were the the kind of patients uh-huh. who were seen as um, potentially uh-huh. able to be seen by speech pathology and they either had to be uh, referred by a GP for dysphagic issues um, or uh, dysphonia.
5: Uh-huh. One of my most enjoyable conversations of the year was with proud Pitjantjara and Yakinjara woman and speech pathology allied health assistant Lorraine Randall.
1: Some days I have lots of jobs um, I'm sure everyone's really busy here, but just for me, I need time to plan out my day. And it's really good that when speech pathologists ask me about my workload at the start of the day, um, it can just be helpful so when they have a job for me, I can just work out on how to fit it in. And um, so what I do is I use a timetable, which is just located where all the clinicians are and then just where they can see it which means that everyone can just see my workload for the day. So then if they needed something for me to do, which was sort of urgent, and they would just put it in my timetable and just let me know beforehand, or oh, could you fit this person in as I won't be able to see and I would just have to prioritise all my workload. But if my day is too busy, it just depends on whether it's urgent enough for that day. But, um... Yeah, and also getting clear instructions on what they would like me to do. Uh, For example, like a written plan of the task, just so I can get back to it and just look over what I really needed to do and then so I can achieve, yeah. Another simply
5: delightful person to chat to was Dr. Sarah Verdon, who chatted about some of the key considerations when working with multilingual children.
16: So this is where I would again bring back in the dynamic assessment. So the cool part about dynamic assessment is that it's actually a form of intervention and it can be really tailored to whatever goal that you're working on. So say, for example, um, you've done your assessment and the other thing I was going to say in assessment is that you can use the tests that you've got informally. So you could still use a self or a rapt to identify some targets if your language profile shows you that the child's had sufficient exposure to English. You just wouldn't score them against the normative data, but it might still help you to identify areas that they might need to build on. So in terms of intervention, you've identified your targets, you've realised, okay, these are issues across both language. Um, what do we need to work on? And so, for example, if you were doing an early intervention session with a child who needed to work on vocabulary and you wanted to work on the names of animals, for example, you might have a whole heap of animal toys and do it in a play session um, with the parent with you as well. And you start going through and labelling names of the animals for example and see if they could label them in English and then get the parent to ask if they could label them in the home language and find out which ones they can and can't do and once you come up for uh with some examples of ones that they didn't know the names to you could then do some intervention so you start doing some play um around these animals doing lots and lots of repetition of the labels teaching them the vocabulary names and then once you've done sufficient intervention um And sufficient repetitions that you think the child should have learned that word then you test again but you can test in both languages so you can get the child to say the name of the animal or the color or the object or whatever it is that's the focus of your intervention in English and get the parent to ask for that name in the home language so you're doing bilingual intervention but not only that you're modeling to the parent how to do this at home and so You should always get parents to provide intervention in their strongest language. So if a parent isn't a strong speaker of English, then they're probably not the best person to be providing an English model for intervention. And so as the speech pathologist, you can be the English person uh, and then the parent can be the home language person. But you're working on the same targets. Such an interesting topic. Gail
5: Mulcair, our Speech Pathology Australia CEO, is a relentless advocate for our profession.
3: She also has an end of year message for you all. Thanks so much, Annika. It's lovely to join in for this last podcast for the year. And what a year it's been. It's an understatement to say that COVID-19 has been one of the most significant disruptors of our times. We know that 2020 was a very challenging year, with the shock of the country being thrust into the midst of a pandemic, and then for 2021 to follow with just as much disruption and constant change. Despite the enormous challenges and stresses throughout the year, I've been so impressed by the dedication and resilience of our profession. The needs of clients have remained at the heart of the professionalism, responsiveness and decision-making of our members. You've all been amazing and need to be duly congratulated and recognised for the significant positive impact you make every day on the lives of those with communication and swallowing needs the Board of Directors and all of us at National Office really appreciate your ongoing support and commitment throughout 2021. And I'm really pleased to be able to extend a heartfelt thanks to everyone and to warmly wish you a relaxing and happy festive season with family and friends. I look forward to contact with many of you again next year in 2022. Stay safe and take care. Bye for now.
5: Thank you, Gail. And to finish this season, I need to say some huge thank yous to the people behind the scenes who work tirelessly with me each week to get each episode released on time and sounding great. Thank you, Anha Alshamiri, who is the content producer on the podcast, and Poyi Wu, communication and marketing officer, who runs the promotional side of the podcast. Can't do this without you both. I also need to acknowledge the amazing contribution to the podcast from both Marie Brown and Ian Yorski. Marie and Ian started the podcast back in 2019 and both moved on to exciting new career opportunities during this year. The podcast would not be where it is today without the legacy of you both, Marie and Ian. Thank you. Thank you to all the incredible people who were featured on the podcast over the year. You were all an absolute delight to work with and your contribution to the speech pathology profession is so appreciated by everyone who tunes in to listen. And thank you to each of you for tuning in every week. We have been so thrilled with how much our listening audience has grown this year. We don't have a podcast without you, so a massive thank you to you all. We will be back at the start of February for our 2022 season and have some great topics already planned. If you have any ideas about what you would like featured on the podcast in season four, I would love to hear from you. Maybe there is a leading person in the profession you would like interviewed, or maybe you are completing research and would like to share the clinical applications of this, or maybe there is a topic you would just like to know more about. Please don't be shy in reaching out and emailing me at speakuppodcast at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. On behalf of everyone at Speech Pathology Australia, we wish you all a sensational summer break. We truly hope you get to enjoy some restful and relaxing time with the people you love. See you on the other side. Bye.
4: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the
8: podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.